Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got him! Looking away, McCann around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park home run! He gone! And he makes the catch up against the wall. And he's going to watch it fly. Strike three called. He got him on strikes. Welcome to The Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website. That's SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You can find us on the web at blessyouboys.com, also on Twitter at Bless You Boys, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash byb.tigers. I'm your host, Hook Slide, along with my partner, Rob Rojacki, who I'm fairly certain is still drunk after watching Saturday's Michigan-Michigan State game. Rob, how you doing? I really just don't want to talk about it. Okay. That, all right. Skipping then on to the... You, you have to talk about it. You were so I mean, upset. It was awful. Like, yeah. what else am I supposed to say? It was, it was so... It was easily the worst sports moment of my life. Really? Um, I, I, yeah. I 2013, mean, I was ALCS, Game see, 2. But the, thing, but the thing with that is that there's some build-up to it. I mean, uh-huh. as Ortiz is stepping to the plate, the bases are loaded. The Tigers made a pitching change. I, I think I even tweeted at that point. I said, just walk Ortiz pitch to the next guy you know i was okay with a bases loaded intentional walk um so there was a feeling of impending doom at that point sure. with this there was nothing it was i i don't i really don't think there's a way you can do it in baseball i think baseball is too too slow and too slow to develop in that there's always going to be you know if you're ever going to get that big of a shift in in win probability there's going to be some build up to it Right. That you've got runners on base or something like that. Even a bases loaded grand slam to walk off the game, you're still going to have some sort of... You have to load the bases. Yeah, you have to load the bases, so. and there's still going to be a moment of panic involved before that before that hit. This sure. was just complete blind, <laughs> getting completely blindsided. On a, on a punt, of all things. I, I was talking to my wife, because she doesn't really get into the football thing, and I'm, I'm only, you know, what a month into experimenting with football to begin with. And I said, you know, really the only way that I can like compare this to what you might see in baseball is if the pitcher tried to intentionally walk somebody with the winning run on third and accidentally threw the ball away. I mean, you just don't see it coming. You you have one job, just throw four straight balls for the intentional walk and get on with the game. And it, what did the game's over? How did that happen? Like you had one job, kick, catch and kick the ball. And I um, think Catherine compared it to a walk off balk which yes. we have seen before. Yes. Uh, it was in, in, in a regular season game, not a playoff game, which, you know, this essentially, you know, it felt like that as far as Michigan-Michigan State rivalry goes. Right. But, yeah. Oh. Well, I mean, condolences. So uh, I, I had, like, zero rooting interests either way. At the last minute, I put a couple bucks down on Michigan State just because they had a favorable money line. So I was I was kind of happy with the with the outcome, but... I mean, the thing is, most of my friends and relatives are on the other side of the state, so I also had a very heavy blue investment in that whole thing. So anyway, now that we've lost half of the audience going, oh my God, they're talking about football, get the football off my baseball podcast, let's, let's press on. We've got a lot to talk about in this episode, especially after taking a week off so we could enjoy two ALDS elimination games last week. 
We're going to be talking about Jeff Jones's retirement this week, Daniel Norris's health, Al Avila's plan for 2016. Of course, we'll get to some listener questions and then wrap up things by practicing our takeout slides on each other. That should be fun. But first, we're going to round the bases and talk about the 2015 playoffs. Has this been really good or the best ever? We'll be right back. Pound ready delivers as a fly ball left field. This one's deep. This one's got a chance, and this ball is gone. A home run. Ian Kinsler delivers the walkoff. Number six for Ian. He rounds third. Heads into the mob scene at home, and the Tigers take the series from AC. A walkoff home run from Kinsler, eight to six. All right, and we are into our first segment, Rounding the Bases. We're talking about the 2015 playoffs. Has this been a really good postseason or, like, the best postseason ever, Rob? Your take, go. I don't know if we can call it the best postseason ever because it doesn't involve the Tigers, but as far as ones without the Tigers go, it's pretty good. We've had, what, Wait, it was, what, 19 up, of... Hold up, back up. Yeah. I'm going to disagree right off the bat. I was just telling somebody this has been the most stress-free postseason I can remember in a long time, precisely because the Tigers aren't in it. That is a good point, but at the same time, it's kind of what we want our team I know. to be. <laughs> I know. It's, you, you give and you take, right? But uh, yeah, I just, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying it because there's none of that, like, waking up every playoff morning with that feeling like, I'm going to throw up, I'm going to throw up. Before today is over, I'm going to throw up. So I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, we get... You know, like, take, for instance, the whole Texas-Toronto Game 5. Yes. You know, tre- Texas scores a run on that ridiculous play where Russell Martin's throwing the ball back to the pitcher and it hits Chu's bat. Um, you know, and Texas scores a run. And we think, you know, what, whatever, this is great. This is awesome. Controversy. Mm-hmm. And then Jose Bautista hits the monster home run right. with the bat flip and everything. And, you know, I'm thinking, wow, this is great. You know, the postseason, this is awesome. Whereas, you know, Texas fans are probably losing their minds. And obviously Toronto lost its mind in the other fashion. Um, but, you know, it's just, it's just, it is nice to be kind of in this scenario where we just get to enjoy the spectacle and the ridiculousness of it. Absolutely. It, it releases you to, to uh, go full team chaos. I mean, like just to totally root for the chaos. And certainly that game was, oh my God, if you caught any of that seventh inning for people listening, that was just, I mean, how long was the delay on the field after they finally called, you know, did the review and said that yes, Odor did in fact score from third. And then not only did the Blue Jays fans lose their mind, they, they lost their trash all over the field and it was like, what, a 10, 15-minute delay, wasn't it? Yeah, at least 10 minutes. I mean, that was... And, the, and then, yeah, to have the, the Blue Jays bounce right back, you know, in the next half of that inning. And, and uh, oh, poor Elvis Andrews. Poor, poor Elvis Andrews. He got charged with two errors out of three consecutive plays. And the third one was borderline. He should have probably caught the ball. It was a bad throw from, I think it was Moreland at first at first base. But, yeah, that's that's a rough... That's a rough way to go down. And then, yeah, followed by Bautista's three-run home run. Yes, love it. Love the chaos because I'm not invested in it. I mean, I, I, I am, to some degree, I want the Blue Jays to win. But I mean, I, at this point, I'm just like, I'm team drama. Yes, the Cardinals are out, so we can just root for whoever we want. It's great. <laughs> if the Mets win, awesome. If the Cubs win, amazing. If the Royals win, eh, we might be a little bit upset, but whatever. 
Yeah, I, I'm trying to decide because my my rooting interests keep shifting. Uh, you know, I am a big Toronto Blue Jays fan. Uh, have some friends that live over there and some kind of connections there for over the years. So uh, definitely, and David Price is there too. So it's easy to root for the the Blue Jays, especially against the the Kansas City Royals. Not not at all a Royals fan. Screw the Royals. Uh, sorry if if Max Reaper and the Royals Review Crew is listening to any of this, but yeah. Uh, but no, when it comes to like, especially the National League, I mean, who do you root for there? I mean, personally, I guess I kind of want to see the Mets win. Um, part of me does kind of like the whole Cubs long, huge streak without a World Series. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's not fair to them. Um, but I also like the Mets because I think I talked about this on a previous podcast in that the Mets kind of caused a ton of chaos here in Washington, D.C. Right. Uh, when they were beating the Nationals and everyone was losing their minds over the Nationals. And then the Nationals gave us a ton of stuff to talk about with their whole on-field and off-field drama and everything. So I was really appreciative of that. Um, and you got to love the whole the young aces that they have, Matt Harvey, Noah Syndergaard, Jacob deGrom, uh, as well as Ioannis Cespedes being on their team. It has been pure pleasure to watch that pitching staff, especially when DeGrom goes out or Syndergaard goes out. I mean, it's one of these situations where, yeah, during the regular season, I think I wasn't paying as close attention. You catch a few games here or there and, you you know, catch the general buzz that DeGrom is really good and Syndergaard is really good. But now we're getting to, you know, kind of focus in and watch them for full nine inning stretches. That's been a real eye opener because I don't think I really fully grasped just how talented these guys were. Yeah, and then they have Steven Matz, a left-hander who's pretty good. You know, he's maybe not on that level, but, you know, he's a, a young arm that we'd love to have in, in this system. Um, and then you think about it. Uh, I just remembered this the other day. I think I was listening to the Effectively Wild podcast, Baseball Prospectus's uh, big podcast, and that they have Zach Wheeler coming back next year, a guy who mm. was, you know, some said might even be better than Matt Harvey. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but you've got another basically five aces in that rotation, five young aces who could be around there for another half decade for that team. It's ridiculous. It, it really is. And and to think that I think it's going to be that way for a couple of years at least. Um, I, I don't I mean, necessarily hold out that kind of hope for, like, say, the Nationals. I mean, they've been kind of in the conversation for several years, but you got some of these upcoming teams, young and upcoming teams like the Cubs and the Mets. And I was just looking at the Royals roster yesterday and realizing that the core of that team 99 percent of that team is going to be there for the next two to three years you know at least with the exception of a couple maybe like Alex Gordon I think is through next year will uh, be with the team next year but yeah I mean it's just, what we're seeing right now I think is what we're going to be seeing probably for the next couple of years but it's such a great position to be in as a Tigers fan and not have the Tigers in this as much as that sucks but just to be totally I really don't care who ends up in the World Series at this point. If the Royals get there, I'm rooting for whoever is the National League representative at that point. And, you know, it could be the Mets. That'd be great, like, for the reasons you pointed out. But if it's the Cubs, holy cow, how cool would that be to see that was 108-year drought, you know, come to an end? Yeah, that would be great. Um, you know, I'm really just, I'm rooting for Game 7s yes. at this point. I want yes. another Game 7. Uh, I remember last year's World Series with the Royals and the Giants was so entertaining. Uh, and getting, you know, more Game 7s, a couple in the in the LCS, both of those series would be great. And another one in the World Series I think would be awesome. So the more the more chaos, the better, as far as I'm concerned. And we were very fortunate to see so many of the hated teams drop out early, like the Yankees. Like you mentioned, the Cardinals are not in it. Uh, the Dodgers are out of it. I don't really care. I am so sick of the Dodgers and their $3 billion payroll. 
Which is a funny thing because how long have they been pursuing, you know, this this elusive World Series? And I don't think they've even been in the World Series, have they? The Dodgers. The Dodgers. The I think they won when they win. Eighty uh, eight was the last one that they won. Yeah, that was the last win. But I mean, in the last just even five to ten years, have oh they even... no, they haven't. They haven't been in the last. There in the last uh, five to ten years or so. Right. They, I mean, they get as far as like the championship series maybe, and then get knocked out so that's that's what payroll does for you right there it's supposed to guarantee a winning team right ha 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 ask the dodgers about that uh let me get your quick opinion on this is don mattingly out um i don't know i feel like they would have done it already if he was fired um you know it's tough to say i i think that the whole brain trust in that organization andrew friedman and and those you know saber saber savvy guys that they have in the front office now understand that it's not necessarily Mattingly's fault, and they probably can look past, you know, just the record and just the failures in the playoffs, especially since they've only been there for one year. Um, and so that they could probably see that this is a guy who's helped guide this, you know, kind of a ridiculous roster to the playoffs in three consecutive years, and has really kind of managed this band of chaos. Especially one I've heard rumors of the, you know, the the clubhouse being a little bit of an issue last season in 2014. And a couple of the guys that they sent away, in, or not necessarily sent away, Hanley Ramirez left as a free agent. And they traded Matt Kemp. A couple of those guys were kind of the problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have bought, but I have not read yet read uh, a book called The Best Team That Money Can Buy. Uh, I believe yeah. that's right, uh, by Molly Knight. I'm looking forward to reading that this off season, And it's supposed to have a lot of great stories and just a ton of great insight into what exactly that clubhouse is like. So I'm very interested to read that and kind of see exactly what's going on here um but yeah i i think that 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 mattingly would be gone if if he were if they were going to fire him i think he would already be gone because i also think that you know friedman and that staff wouldn't necessarily leave him twisting in the wind i'm gonna have to pick that book up too i've heard the the title tossed around several times in the last uh, few months and it's it's an intriguing i think subject so yeah i'll probably have to pick that up for the off season as well uh what's what's been your favorite series so far now that we're talking about, I mean, I know the, the, the championship series have yet to be decided yet, but we, we, we had a pretty good uh, crazy run there with the division series. We did. Um, you know, I'm tempted to say the Toronto-Texas series because of Game 5. I think that, you know, that's really kind of a huge trump card. But as far as the overall series went, I think that the Dodgers-Mets series was probably my favorite um, just because you had so many great pitching matchups. I mean, you had Zach Grinke and Clayton Kershaw going for the Dodgers twice each. Uh, you had, you know, all the Mets aces that we've already talked about. And seeing those guys go toe-to-toe, you know, DeGrom went against Grinky, I think, twice. Um, to see those matchups has just been, was incredible. Yeah, I'm, I'm jury's out, I think, for me. Because, like you said, they, they've all been so good. I really enjoyed a lot of aspects of the Astros-Royals series. Uh, you know, just seeing some of the... I hate to say it because I'm not a Kansas City fan, but, the, you know, some of those come from behind victories, and that was what game four, I want to say, uh, that they had that huge uh, comeback of like five, six runs in the seventh inning or something to that effect. The, the Astros were up like six to two. So it was, yeah. Yeah, it was a five-run inning that they came back and uh, ended up coming out on top seven-six and, and made it nine to six by the end. But, I mean, that was just... Take, take you know, the, the personality, you know, thing out of it. Like, do, do you like the Royals? Do you like the Astros? That was that was a really crazy inning. It reminded me, the way that went down with, like, you know, base hit, base hit, base hit, walk, base hit. 
it reminded me very much of Game 6 of the World Series in 1986 between the Mets and the Red Sox when the Red Sox were supposed to lock it down. It was, you know, extra innings at that point, and the Mets just rattled off a series of base hits, you know, one right after the other with two outs and managed to come back and win the game. It was just, it was very exciting to see that build up. Yeah, and if anything, going back to our discussion at the top of the podcast, I think that that for Astros fans might be kind of similar to what Michigan fans dealt with uh, last Saturday there. Just kind of that, you know, that feeling of, oh, we finally got this, and then just utter heartbreak after that. And then they had to go, you know, kind of pick up the pieces and play another game that they obviously didn't win. Now, it's out there in, in the uh, social media world, and it's making its way to other places. You've seen it on tattoos. You've seen it carved into pumpkins. I'm talking, of course, about the bat flip, the one that everybody's talking about and apparently etching into their skin with ink. What is wrong with people? I don't. That was weird. That's very weird. Uh, you're not going to regret that at all, right, buddy? No, not at all. Uh, what a cool moment, though. And, of course, it spawned the you know typical discussions about bat flips in general and playing the game the right way. Did you have any issues with, with the way <laughs> Bautista just anger-chucked that thing? Not at all. And I, I almost hope that this is kind of the, the moment that bat flips become okay. Uh, I don't think it will be, but, you know, I was kind of hoping that this, you know, this just, it was, it was a moment of celebration of, you know, Bautista saying, okay, we got this now. Uh, and then, you know, throwing his bat up in the air. And I think that that, um, you know, that had the potential to, you know, not only make bat flips a little bit more accepted in the baseball lexicon, uh, but I think I saw someone else post on Twitter that, you know, this bat flip could make baseball cool again. Uh, <laughs> and I thought that that was really interesting. Um, you know, and it obviously it just kind of spawned the whole, you know, old school versus new school debate and even some other issues that I don't really want to touch on. Um, but, you know, it was just great to see him just throw the bat up in the air. It reminded me of Ioannis Cespedes flipping his bat after winning the home run derby hmm. a couple of years ago, uh, but obviously on a much, much grander scale. Yeah, to call that a bat flip is really kind of a it's, it's, it's very much an understatement that that was a bat launch i don't think i've ever seen a guy just up and chuck a bat overhand just throw it i mean where did that thing even come down uh i mean it probably came down before the baseball but other than that i don't know <laughs> the look on his face too is priceless i mean that it was you talk about it being a moment of celebration and yet the look the smoldering in his eyes of just if there was ever a you to a pitcher that was written all over the face I mean that was it he was just like yeah gotcha <laughs> and uh, it was, it's kind of funny that we've been having some friendly arguments on Twitter you know here and there with people saying oh best bat flip in the world and it's kind of brought to light you know some of the other great bat flips you know in baseball recent history anyway I, I still think as good as that one was I still think the Guillen bat flip and pimp it out you know against uh, Jared Weaver in 20, 2011 still tops that I think it's different, though. I think that, that that was obviously Guillen sticking up for his teammate and the whole you know issue and the whole events that had transpired already throughout that game. This wasn't necessarily directed at the Rangers and their pitcher. This was just kind of the the celebration of all right, this you know we hit this homer and now it's basically over. 
type thing. Um, you know, Bautista himself said, you know, this was kind of a, you know, just a celebration that wasn't trying to show him up or anything like that. Uh, and I, and I believe that. I don't think that, you know, he meant any ill will towards Sam Dyson, the pitcher that was on the mound, on the mound at the time. There were no, you know, issues, no bad blood that had come forth earlier in that moment, especially not, you know, anything that was Dyson's fault. Um, so I think that it's very difficult to compare those, but yeah, I think Ian thing was so awesome. Yeah. I, I guess at that point, I guess I'm waiting more than just the bat flip. That was the flip plus the hop, hop and chest thump and the, the thuggery of the look that he gave Weaver. So I guess I would have to kind of pull that back and say, no, Bautista's you have to grade just purely on the flip itself, which was not a flip. It was, it was a full on. Well, Guillen's wasn't really a flip either. It was the, you know, the, the he reaches out and then yeah. he drops the bat. That's a, that's um, a mic drop so, is what that is. Yeah, that's what that is. <laughs> if we just need different categories of, of bat flips and I think they should all be okay. And I'm just so sick and tired of these, you know, unwritten rules and Hey, you can't do that. Cause that's uh, it's offensive to the pitcher, whatever, you know, if Dyson did have a problem with it, dude, suck it up. Don't throw the meatball next time. That's, you know, that's just the way it goes. I think that's what Max Scherzer said about the thing. He said, you know, if you don't want him to mm-hmm. flip the bat on you, don't give up a home run. Right, right. Which is easy for him to say, but still. Well, that's right. He's Max Scherzer. He, yeah. Well, he is also, I think, you, you've seen him many, many times be very uh, uh, demonstrative in his own emotions. You know, the, the fist pumps and the screaming and that kind of thing. So he's, I think, very much on the side of, you know, displaying the emotion on the field once once something cool happens like that but oh boy it's just been a cool cool playoff set oh hold on hold on stop everything daniel murphy just homered again are you kidding seriously the dude is on fire that's ridiculous uh... six home runs in the postseason has he homered in every game this series so far that's six i think yeah he's i think he's homered in five games in a row wow this is ridiculous. Who saw that coming when they picked up Daniel Murphy? He's been there for like six years. Oh, I'm thinking of somebody else. Uh, David Murphy, maybe. Da- no, David Murphy plays for someone else. Mm-hmm. I know. I I get him confused, too. And I think Patrick did earlier. I was editing one of his posts, and I think he got those two confused. I think David Murphy was the one that went to the Angels at the deadline. So I've kind of this had those. Is, this is great too because before the show we were literally discussing the difference between Kyle Kendricks, yes. or Kyle Hendricks and Liam Hendricks, uh, per Great Brisbane's tweets. <laughs> yes. So kind of funny that we get that mixed up too. The dropkick Murphys that we can't quite sort out. Oh goodness! So yeah, uh, you thought Cespedes was going to be the uh, the game changer. It turns out it's it's actually Murphy. Go figure. You just never know in the postseason. Uh, or the playoffs, should I say, because we're about to talk about another kind of postseason. We are in the postseason, but in, in a different way. Uh, the Tigers are out of everything. And just to kind of uh, tie a little bow on the 2015 season, uh, let, let's hand out our, our postseason awards, shall we? This was, I think this was an idea that, that uh, you were very uh, hep on to kind of hand out uh, the team MVP, the Cy Young, the Rookie of the Year, and the Breakout Player uh, just as in terms of the way the Tigers... It's so hard to do this, though. I think the Rookie of the Year is fairly obvious. Rookie yeah. of the Year, yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, that's... Is there is there anyone else besides McCann, though? Mm. No. Probably not. I don't know. James McCann. I mean, maybe maybe Daniel Norris, but he wasn't really around that long. Right, yeah. yeah. That, that's James. a clear James McCann all the way. Yeah. But who would you give the MVP to? Uh, I would have to say J.D. Martinez. Yeah. Uh, as good as Miguel Cabrera was, you know, I thought Martinez was incredible. He, he stayed healthy for most of the year, which is better than you can say for a lot of this team. 
Um, and, you know, to come up with five wins, uh, five wins above replacement, 38 home runs, 102 RBI, uh, just an incredible season for him. And I'm really excited to have him back. Yeah, the only, I think, candidate that would come close to getting MVP honors would be Justin Verlander. Yeah, I mean, if you if you go by baseball references, war, which is what I'm looking at now, uh, Ian Kinsler actually led the team with six wins above replacement. But uh, I think that, you know, Martinez, especially with everything he gave the team, both offensively and defensively, I know that there's a big discrepancy between his defensive war on baseball reference and what he had on fan graphs. Um, you know, especially with all the outfield assists that he gave, I think that I think that Martinez is the is the answer there. Yeah, war more. I'm just going purely based on the gut feel and how I feel emotionally about these guys. I'm <laughs> kidding. It's it's Martinez. Uh, as far as Cy Young, that's got to be another really easy pick, don't you think? I mean, it's either Verlander or David Price, and Price isn't there, so I kind of feel not right about about saying he was the Tigers Cy Young. He made more starts than Verlander this year. For the Tigers. Well, there is that. So. I don't know. We could flip a coin. Mm. What if we just agree that it was Alfredo Simon? Oh, I mean, <laughs> he he led the team in wins. He led the team in innings. <laughs> That's right. He did. He, oh, my God. God. He led the team in wins. How is what that? A terrible, what a terrible season. He had a great start, though. I mean, I yeah. distinctly remember writing the post for the site at the end of May and, and and I was very careful to say this is not a long-term thing. I said he's not the ace, but he's pitching like the ace in terms of taking the team deep into innings. Uh, the the RE24 uh, value that he was racking up at that point, he was doing very well. And then he was. He was. And then, yeah, it just all kind of fell apart from there. Um, and it was kind of similar to what he did last year. You know, in 2014, he, you know, was very good through the first few months of the season. It was all kind of... Uh, you know, luck on balls in play and things like that. And his ERA was far lower than his fielding independent pitching. Um, but yeah, I'm looking at it now. And, you know, Alfredo Simon's ERA through June this season, uh, through the end of June, was 3.57. Hmm. So, you know, just kind of a good start for him. He had a 2.58 ERA uh, through his first 12 starts. So the last two starts in June were kind of the beginning of the end for him. Right, right. Well, yeah, he's he's gone, though, so... Good riddance and whatever else. And that just leaves us with the breakout player of the year. And I really, really struggled to even answer that. If I were going to pick a breakout player, I'd probably go with, uh, see, I don't know. I kind of want to say Jose Iglesias, but, you know, it's kind of one of those things where he broke out, but that's because he didn't really play last year and we didn't really have anyone, you know, and just shortstop was just such an awful vortex of suck. Right. In 2014, that you know, you kind of you see Iglesias doing this, hitting over 300 and playing awesome defense, and just like, whoa, where the hell was all this? Um, so I guess he kind of gets it by default. There also wasn't really anyone else that broke out. That's the problem. You're going down these lists of like, uh, yeah, nobody really did. I I totally well, agree with the. With the Iglesias rundown, just because, like you said, even if he had played in 2014, we saw enough of him in 2013, I think, to have some expectations set. And I mean, at least for me, the expectations were a lot lower than what he actually did this year. So I would I'd be on board with that. But I also uh, the other guy that came to mind was uh, Nick Castellanos. And I know he struggled at the beginning of the year and through the first half, but he seemed to find a stride a little bit. His uh, I want to say his defense got a little better this year. 
I think it did. Um, you know, based on kind of the splits uh, of the advanced metrics, and those are you know very finicky and don't really give you the full picture. But it seemed like he had struggled early on, and then maybe got a little bit better defensively throughout the season. Uh, but it's difficult to say either way. I think he was definitely better defensively than he was in 2014. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think there's much doubt about that. Um, wasn't great by any means, and he's definitely going to have to hit more to provide some actual value for the team going forward. Uh, but I thought he was better in 2015 than 2014 with a glove. Yeah, maybe it's easier to think in terms of you know breakout player if I'm really kind of reframing that as the question of who am I most kind of excited to see next year to see them continue on the path that they started this year. And Castellanos is definitely on the top of that list. I liked what we were seeing towards the end. Iglesias is another, you know, so I think those those are both adequate, I think, candidates for quote-unquote breakout player of the year. Yeah, I mean, another guy you could throw in there is Alex Wilson. We didn't really know what to expect with him, and to have him, you know, allow a 2.19 ERA in 70 innings uh, was pretty nice, too. Yeah, I, I don't know why I didn't even put him in the conversation. I guess I was thinking more of position players, but yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. He, he fits the bill in the same respect. I, I don't know if anybody, of course, I guess maybe that's harder to, to say just simply because the bullpen was so freaking bad that, you know, he didn't necessarily put on a, you know, an all-star performance necessarily, but it was certainly great by what we had to compare it to. It was, and you know, he was also not used that well either, right. which is just going to set you off into a, another dimension again. <laughs> I, uh, I'm in a zen place, man, so I'm just... I'm not Let's gonna, leave it at that. Huh? I'm not going to get upset about any of that. But yeah, yeah you're right, though. If they, if they had used him uh, you know, as... I don't know, maybe the closer, the eighth inning guy or something, and we'd seen him perform well in more high leverage situations, it might feel more like, yeah, that was an all-star kind of year for him. And, uh, you know, it's kind of feel that way. But yeah, I'm I'm going to stay calm and uh, not get into the bullpen thing. I think we're going to maybe get through most of this episode without having to touch on that awful subject and Yay. the subject of managing the bullpen. And yeah, it's it's, it's going to be okay. Anyway, uh, I think that just about wraps it up for a rounding the basis segment. When we get back from the break, We'll go into warming in the pen. And uh, Daniel Norris was diagnosed with what? We'll talk about that when we get back. Here's the 2-2. It's in the fly ball, right field. Deep and down the line and gone! Victor Martinez with a two-run shot. Tigers back on top here in the seventh. They lead it 7-6. All right, welcome back from the break. We're into the warming in the pen segment, and we got to talk about this uh, breaking news this week. And Daniel Norris was diagnosed with what? This was kind of a strange story, Rob. It just broke yesterday. Certainly none of us saw it coming for obvious reasons. But uh, Daniel Norris posted on his Instagram account uh, that he was actually diagnosed with uh, thyroid cancer. Earlier this season, when he was still with Toronto, when he was sent down to their uh, AAA uh, system and team, uh, and he was given, it sounded like from what he was saying, he was given a couple of different uh, doctor's opinions. One was to go ahead and shut down the season and get uh, surgery, and the other was to go ahead and play through the season and then just deal with it at the end of the year, and he's uh, obviously chosen that route, so he will be you know, uh, lined up for uh, fairly serious surgery here uh, coming up. Just uh, really the word that de- I think describes this is uh, disorienting, don't you think? It is. Um, you know, the, the first kind of thought that went through my head uh, when I, I saw this news, obviously, you know, there's some shock uh, going along with this. You know, no one expected this, but it's 
I'm happy that he, you know, was able to catch it soon. Uh, it sounds like this is a, you know, I, I, I don't want to downplay the seriousness of it, but it sounds like this is a, a rather manageable type of, of thyroid cancer. Um, and to see him, you know, to have him be diagnosed quickly and, you know, to have the doctors even be able to say, you know, you can still pitch the rest of the season before we take care of this. Uh, that's a very encouraging sign. Um, you know, I don't necessarily know. I feel like a lot of young people would shrug off, you know, any sort of symptoms. I don't know exactly what circumstances led to him being diagnosed with it. Um, but to get hit, to get it caught quickly and to have them diagnose it, you know, rapidly and be able to treat it right away is, is very, very encouraging and hopefully bodes well for his future. Yeah, and I knew we needed to kind of address the topic just because, you know, it came up, it is such a, a kind of a big news story um but i was hesitant to even really wade into these waters just because you know we have to avoid any sort of miscommunication and and certainly the the number one uh you know concern here in priority is for daniel norris the person not daniel norris the the pitcher and what that means for the tigers and their starting rotation next year it's kind of like you know i'm more comfortable talking about all that after the surgery is done and we find out that he's okay to start worrying about what that means for the Tigers. You just, you know, wish him all the best and, and uh, a very uh, thorough recovery from all of that. Uh, but there are some kind of spinoff topics, I, I think, on this that just, well, I guess, number one, it, it there's some consolation for me, I guess, in the fact that the Tigers did know about this prior to when they made the trade. And Brad Osmus was quoted as saying, I found out about it after the trade, but I know Dave was aware and Al was aware at the time of the trade and that you know as far as being concerned about Daniel Norris the person made me feel a little better because I thought you know if if there were any question of this being a potentially life-threatening situation there's no way they would have you know executed on that trade the fact that they did seems to bode well for his for his future yeah um and to have both organizations you know aware of the situation and uh, and st- still go through with this trade um, you know, like you said, it bodes well for his future. Um, but I think it respe- it speaks to you know the the respect that the, these organizations have for one another and their employees. Um, I remember a somewhat similar situation earlier this year uh, when the Cleveland Indians uh, publicly said that they would not trade uh, their infielder Mike Avilas because his daughter was going through uh, right. cancer treatment at the Cleveland Clinic. Right. Um, and I th- I thought that a lot of people you know. Uh, that was a very positive thing that the organization did to, you know, secure their the person, Mike Avilas, and his family over any sort of um, any benefit to their organization as a whole. And I thought that that was that was great. And it's good to see all of these teams kind of, you know, look after their their employees and their players as people first. And and like you said, it sounds like. I'm no medical expert, but from the little bit of research that I did, it does sound like thyroid cancer is a very, very treatable, uh, you know, disease to work with. And uh, I want to say I read I read one statistic that said, uh, at least in terms of minimum lifespan of five years past the surgery, the success rate on this is like ninety nine point nine percent. So that, I think it does. There, there's a lot of reason here to think he'll be he'll be all right, and that's certainly what we're rooting for. Um, I still found it a little strange that the way this news broke that Norris made the announcement I thought well first of all he that he made the announcement at all personally um and then it was just it was kind of a rather casual thing to do this kind of via Instagram you know it seemed to me like why didn't the Tigers organization make that announcement in a more formal way why is Daniel Norris himself 
putting the news out there and doing it on Instagram, no less. Well, I think that there, there are a couple of reasons for this. One, I think that Norris himself has to consent to releasing the information mm. because it is medical information. The Tigers just can't release that. Um, uh, as far as the announcement on Instagram, I mean, you know, he's a young guy. He's, what, 22 years old. Right. Uh, I guess that that's just, you know, kind of the thing these days. You know, I'm still part of that generation. But even five years older, I do. I find it a little bit strange. But at the same time, um, you know, the the casual announcement of it kind of, I think, speaks to the type of person that we have, uh, that we know Norris to be, or at least have been, you know, told that Norris is. He's, you know, kind of a low-key guy. Um, and I think that it was, I, I like that he announced it this way, um, because I feel like it's a little bit more personal this way, hmm. rather than him sitting at a panel, you know, with Al Avila next to him and announcing it to a group of reporters. Mm-hmm. Um I think this was, you know, kind of a a player reaching out to the fans and everything saying, you know, um, for him to say on Instagram kind of says, you know, I'm all right, we're going to get this taken care of type of thing. Um, And I thought that it it added a little bit of a personal touch that we haven't necessarily seen in other situations from the Tigers recently. Yeah, it's funny as you're saying that, I guess I'm kind of getting closer to understanding my reaction to the way that it did come out. I guess it maybe felt like the organization itself, I, I don't know, it was less personal. I guess, you know, the, I think it would have felt better to me to see them kind of own own the player, the care for the player, you know, to say, as they do, you know, when there are other types of injuries that are not as serious, they'll make the announcement, you know, Jose Iglesias has a, you know, fractured finger or whatever will be out. I just kind of wanted to hear from, you know, from the organization as well. I, I don't know, maybe that's just a... I, I well, I know, that, I know that El Avila spoke to reporters or at least release a statement afterwards so there was a little bit of that mm-hmm. uh, and i think that you know if there was any sort of release i think it kind of got drowned out by just the not only you know norris's the shock of the announcement itself um but also the outpouring of support that i think norris received from you know everyone all over social media um you know fans of other teams and everything you know everyone else you know is now a daniel norris fan um, right. And so that's a, a very encouraging thing to see, and we really hope that you know everything goes well for for him medically first uh, before he even thinks of coming back to baseball itself. Yeah, and we we will address the topic of what that means for the starting rotation. But like I said, I, I think I prefer to save that conversation for after we find out the surgery is done and everything is okay. You know, then then we can kind of talk about what that means practically speaking. Uh, but in other off season news, uh, I, was it the same day? Maybe the day before. Uh, Jeff Jones, the Tigers pitching coach, announced that he's uh, he's made his last trip to the pitcher's mound and is going to uh, retire and won't be back in 2016. Was yeah, that... it was it was the same day. It was on it also was... on Monday, just a couple hours apart um, to have these two announcements kind of come out in conjunction with one another. Uh, it was definitely a surprise, uh, you know, a big kind of a big day for Tigers news, despite them not playing uh, in a while. Um, you know, for Jones, I guess congratulations on the retirement, man. Right. Thanks for. Thanks for all the stuff you did for these pitchers. You know, I thought he did a, a, a heck of a job as the Tigers pitching coach while he was here. He had a lot of different, you know, great successes with the, the Tigers pitchers. Um, Anibal Sanchez kind of morphing into a stud at the front of the rotation. Obviously, Justin Verlander, you know, progressing throughout his career. Max Scherzer, um, you know, he's got maybe another Cy Young on his uh, on his resume and David Price this year, too. 
Certainly a lot of successes for, for Jeff Jones. And I know we've touched on this in, in past podcasts, just how difficult it is to kind of quantify what a coach of any kind does, whether it's a hitting coach or a base running coach, you know, a defensive coach. And, and now we're talking about pitching coaches. It, you know, there's just so many variables that go into that. Um, but, I, you know, as we've said before, I think a lot of it hinges on the talent that you're working with. You know, if you have a bad pitcher, it doesn't matter how good of a coach you are. He's going to be a bad pitcher. And certainly Jeff Jones has been given some some great talent to work with in a Verlander, a Scherzer, a Sanchez, and so forth. But it does say something, I think, especially when you get down to guys like Doug Fister and Rick Porcello, who weren't necessarily all that great before they came to Detroit and became decent, and even more so, got worse after they left Detroit. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, uh, Fister and Porcello, Fister in particular, uh, is definitely kind of another, or you know, a couple, two more success stories for Jones. Um, you know, you had Fister; his, his peripherals were much better than his actual win-loss record in ERA when he arrived with the Tigers in 2012, or, or no, 2011. Sorry, um, but even then, before that, you know, the couple years before that, he hadn't been that great. And then to come, have him come here and do what he did down the stretch in 2011 with that incredible run. Uh, and then even over the next couple seasons, too, uh, definitely speaks to, you know, uh, what we hope was Jeff Jones' pitcher whisperer. <laughs> the pitcher whisperer. I like that. I like that. It, it's it's funny because as hard as it is to kind of assign, you know, credit or blame or whatever it might be, um, the Tiger fan base reacted rather predictably, I thought, when this news was released. And you go, you know, read any of the uh, news stories that come out on Detroit News or the Freep or on Facebook or whatever. Go go to the comments section. And, of course, you have this outpouring of, you know, Jeff Jones hate. Thank God he's gone, you know, this kind of thing. And you kind of go, wow, really? What are you, I mean, what are you basing that on? Because I'm not really aware of any failures. I mean, can you think of any pitcher that came to Detroit that was really good and that got, you know, recognizably worse after, you know, sitting under Jeff Jones for, for a year or two. And, and I have to make a caveat to that because, of course, I, there's like 80 people going, Joe Nathan, Joe Nathan. <laughs> what about Joe Nathan? Yeah, uh, let, let's let's eliminate from the conversation uh, guys that were injured, you know, got injured that year or were already kind of at the tail end of their career. You, you got to take the whole bullpen data with a lot of, you know, you got to weight that accordingly because bullpen pitchers are just notorious for being volatile that way. Um, but I can't think of a single clear case of a pitcher that, that came to Detroit being, you know, good to great that got worse under Jeff Jones. No, definitely not. Um, you also wonder what exactly the pitching coach does with a bullpen when there's also a bullpen coach. And yeah. I think that that kind of goes more into, you know, the whole, we don't know what coaches do at the professional level. Um, but yeah, there you're, I'm definitely struggling to think of a starter that got worse under Jones's watch. Um, you know, bullpen guys are a little bit tougher to, to determine, but, um, well, they just swing, you know, they swing yeah. by nature that way. And like you as I said, Joe Nathan was at the end of his career and getting old and losing velocity. And, you know, there are other guys that maybe we found out had to have surgery or something, you know, it's, it's just. That seems to be what I'm seeing in the uh, you know the, the crazy mouth breather fan comments. They're like, "Thank God Jones is gone because that bullpen." And you kind of go, "What?" <laughs> I mean, did you know that Jeff what? Jones was the bullpen coach? I didn't know that until I, I, when was that? Uh, I want to say he became the pitching coach in 2011. I want to say, but yeah, prior to that, oh. he was 
he, he was, was the, the bullpen, bullpen coach before that. Yeah, huh. I didn't know that. Um, well, I know that he he was the one that took over for Rick Knapp when Rick Knapp was fired in 2011, um, and we all thought Rick Knapp was going to be pretty good after they hired him away from the Minnesota Twins, uh, but unfortunately that didn't necessarily seem to work out. Uh, but Jones definitely was kind of a kind of a home run hire for them. Um, you know, I I read somewhere that Brad Ausmus had actually asked Jones to stay on for another year or two when he was hired because it yes. seemed like Jones was ready to call it quits then. Um, you know, and it's it's definitely good that Jones was able to stick around for the last couple of years. And I think it kind of speaks to, you know, the quality of coach that he is, the person that he is, that Osmus was like, no, dude, I want you here when I come in. Yeah, I did read that, too. Jones was planning to take retirement when J- uh, Jim Leland retired in 2013. And yeah, exactly to your point, I, I'm sure Brad Osmus wanted to keep as many of the, uh, you know, pre-existing coaches around as he could to help his own transition um, you know, help help me get to know the team that you guys have worked with kind of thing. Um, but yeah, certainly if, if Jones was as bad as people make him out to be, I don't think they would have held, they would have said, yes, thank you for your offer of retirement and you can go. So uh, yeah, very kind of cool of him to stick around for a couple of years and help Brad Osmus, you know, make his transition. Uh, and, and this is a really kind of a difficult question because we are talking about how impossible it is to quantify the value of a pitching coach, but who would you peg as as a potential replacement for him? Um, well, based on what we've seen from the Tigers before, they may promote from within. Um, I believe the bullpen coach, who's the bullpen coach right now? Mike Rojas or someone like they that? got me. I don't know. We'll have to look that up. Um, a guy that I would like to see them, you know, hopefully try to woo, uh, who is actually available right now. There are definitely some employed pitching coaches who I would like to see. Um, but a guy who is recently... Well, I'm not sure if he's still unemployed. Um, is Steve McCaddy, the the pitching coach from the Washington Nationals last year? I'm not sure what his situation is with Matt Williams just being fired, um, but he's a guy that has really worked, you know, pretty well with some of the talent that he's got. Uh, like Jones, he's inherited some great talent. You know, Steven Strasburg, Jordan Zimmerman, Gio Gonzalez, things like that. But he really kind of turned that staff into a pretty good unit. Um, especially, you know, the couple of years that they won in the division there. He kind of helped harness Gio Gonzalez's command. Uh, he turned Jordan, helped turn Jordan Zimmerman into, you know, a you know, fairly highly regarded prospect into one of the premier free agents on the market this year. And he, you know, helped Steven Strasburg become this monster of a start. Mm-hmm. So I, that would be a guy that I would target, ideally, uh, you know, if the Tigers want to go that route. But, you know, it's tough to say what they'll do. Yeah, it's it's hard to say if it matters. I mean, really, who you, who you have as a pitching coach, you, you do want to kind of, I think, pull from a place that you can show some past track record of success. And I know a lot of that does depend on the initial talent level that you're that you're handed to work with. Um, but I guess speaking of promoting from within, I, the only other pitching coach that I'm anywhere near familiar with is Mike Henneman, who coached uh, was the pitching coach for the West Michigan Whitecaps in 2014, and I think prior, a little prior to that. Um, I thought he did a really good job. In fact, earlier this year on the podcast, I got to interview Joe Mantiply, uh, one of the relief pitchers who is now, I couldn't tell you where he, is he with Erie, I think maybe? Anyways, he was with Erie. He was with the Whitecaps last year, and I got to talk to him on the podcast and talk to him specifically about uh, pitching coaches and you know what they work with, and uh, he, he had nothing but good things to say about Mike Henneman. Um, I know Mike Henneman is actually with uh, Erie right now as well, so w- it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to see him kind of graduate. I, I'm very impressed with with the Whitecaps pitching staff last year as a whole. So, you know. yeah, and you you almost wonder if that maybe is a precursor to Henneman getting the job hmm. um, to see you know 
with the organization, probably knowing that Jones wasn't going to be around too much longer, um, to have them kind of push Henman up and say, you know, maybe you're going to be working with some of these guys at the major league level. You know, maybe this is kind of a, you know, an inkling that Henneman might be the guy. It's funny you should bring that up because, you know, with with these kind of things, I don't think any of us knew that Jeff Jones planned to retire in 2013. I don't recall that ever being an item discussed. As far as we all knew, he just stuck around. Uh, But you would have to think that the Tigers organization certainly, you know, obviously, if if Brad Osmus was the one who specifically said, no, will you stay? Then they knew it was going on. The funny thing is, is that I remember Mike Henneman last year at the end of the 2014 season for the Whitecaps said he was leaving. And they uh, convinced him to come back. He he had actually announced his retirement in September of last year, and then at the uh, near the end of October of last year, it was announced that oh he's actually not leaving. He's going to be promoted to Double A. So you could be onto something there. Maybe they they knew that Jones was not going to be around for that much longer and started working the process. So yeah, that that could be an interesting conversation. I'm going to retire. Hey, hey, wait, 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 wait. If you do this, maybe you know, maybe in 2016, he's the actual pitching coach. That would be something. I, I don't know. So, yeah, but absolutely wishing all the best to uh, Jeff Jones in his retirement. And uh, I, even though some fans are going crazy and thinking this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, I would salute what he accomplished. I think you would as well. Uh, so that should wrap it up for our warming in the pen segment. When we come back, we will go high and tight. And Al Avila has got a plan. We'll talk about that after the break. A fly ball, center field. This one's deep, going back. Borges at the warning track, looking up, and it's gone. A home run. Amazing. How about it? First chance to hit 400, and Miguel Cabrera delivers in his first at bat of the day. And welcome back from the break. It is time for the high and tight segment. Rob Alavila has got a plan. He made some pronouncements, announcements in the press a couple of weeks ago. Uh, We didn't really touch on this, but we were supposed to record this podcast last week. But due to all the coolness and excitement and awesomeness of the 2015 postseason, I realized that the only day that we could record last week was on Tuesday. It just happened to be the same day that we had two Game 5s, two elimination games going on in the ALDS. So we weren't able to... uh, capitalize on that we were a lot closer to the alavila news at that point in time so it's maybe somewhat of uh, yesterday's breakfast at this point but i wanted to discuss some of the things that he talked about uh in his press conference talking about what he intends to do in 2016 their plans going forward uh a couple of things stood out to me rob first of all he says that uh, the payroll will be quote very highly competitive but when he was asked the question about you know, the, in theory, having a payroll around 189 million or 190 million, he said that it was quote ridiculous. So, what's uh, what's a competitive payroll that doesn't reach 189 million? Where, where, where's the payroll going to be this year? Uh, you got me. Um, you know, you'd like to think that they're going to expand a little bit on you know the current roster and you know go out and sign a guy or two. Um, so it's tough to say what exactly they plan on doing. Uh, for the payroll, but you know, if they're not going to get back up to the level that they were at last year, it's tough to say that it's going to be, quote, highly competitive. Yeah, very highly competitive. He really wanted to make that, that a clear point. I think we, I've been all this time operating under the assumption that they were around 173 to $175 million this year. Uh, I think they've got to at least get up to, I don't know, 183, 185, somewhere there. Because, I mean, seriously, with all the, the, the big money contracts they've got tied up right now, they have like $15.67 left to spend on like nine different positions. It's going to be a very tricky balancing act. It just, I guess, 
I don't know. It's probably useless speculation at this point, but you know, you hear people talking about, uh, you know, just how 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 um how much Mike Illich is cramping down, I guess, on on the budget, you know, and saying no, this is it. This is what you get to work with. Make it happen. Yeah, um, you know, it, the the Tigers definitely kind of did a similar thing last year. Um, you know, and whether that was mandated by Mike Illich or whoever, it's tough to say, but it seemed like that Dave Dombrowski didn't have a lot of money to work with as far as fixing the bullpen. You know, he picked up Joaquin Soria's option, which really worked out. But other than that, he didn't really add any high profile or expensive arms or anything. Um, so it's tough to say what exactly they'll do there. Um, you know, with a few more needs and a few more dollars to spend, hopefully they'll be able to get a little bit more creative with everything. And it seems like, uh, it seems like Alavila, you know, at least with the, you know, the the vow to be a little bit more saber savvy as an organization. Hopefully, they're up to the challenge. Yeah, I certainly hope that they're willing to dig a little deeper into the pocketbook, just because those, you know, the things that Michael Litch said when they let Dave Dombrowski go, the, the comment about being, you know, whatever the it was, pedal to the metal or the, the pedal to the floor, in terms of pursuing that World Series ring hard, it made me think, yeah, they're going to want to spend a little more. But apparently, 189 million dollars is ridiculous. So don't don't press Al on that; he'll have you whacked. Um, well, hold hold on. I'm also yep. I was I was spending a moment there trying to look up what exactly David Dombrowski said the year before. Um, you know, he kind of alluded to the same thing last year or uh, after the 2014 season, and he said, "quote We're a top-heavy team, but I don't know how that's going to change." I read that and I understand it. We have the most generous owner in baseball you could possibly have in sports, but we're in a situation where $200 million payrolls aren't what is common here. We are very generous in what we have. And that kind of speaks to, you know, it's it's kind of a similar situation and, you know, similar thing to what Al Avila said. Uh, you know, he didn't necessarily use the word ridiculous, but it's also, you know, he kind of shot down the idea of having some sort of payroll of that magnitude and then they go out and still have a payroll that high. So, you know, maybe it's just kind of, you know, a little bit more GM speak uh, from Avila, you know, and someone who maybe necessarily hasn't had to do a lot of that yet. You know, I know he let a few shits and goddams go during his uh, <laughs> his press conference with uh, Brad about Brad Osmus. So, you know, maybe he's just a little bit more. Uh, well, you know, most of my conversations about Brad Osmus have a lot of shits and goddams in them too. So, you know, so we we have that in common. I was just looking at the. Um, list of MLB team payrolls, which is always kind of an interesting exercise to see where that all kind of shakes out. The Tigers are still number four on that list. The only three teams that outspend them are the Dodgers, the Yankees, and the Red Sox. And, you know, when you kind of look at the the way that this season, you know, kind of panned out, and what are we looking at now with the the Royals are still left. They spent $113, $114 million. Uh, the Blue Jays spent $123 million. Um, the Cubs... It's been 120 million, and where are the Mets? The Mets are the, the lowest on the list, the 21st team in baseball, and they only spent about 102 million. So, I mean, what we were saying earlier, the Dodgers are kind of the cautionary tale. You don't have to spend 300 million dollars to put a competitive team together, and I, you know, I, I think uh, it's still going to put Al Avila to the test. Um, in terms of what what kind of creativity he can exercise and how he can help uh, build a competitive team using saber metrics and still saving some dollars here and there, he did say that they are definitely targeting two starting pitchers. Surprised by that? Did you think they were going to go with one, three, two? Sound about right? 
Not necessarily. And saying that they're going to target two starting pitchers is still different than actually going out and getting mm-hmm. two starting pitchers. Um, you know, Dave Jombrowski said he wanted to add a starting pitcher last season, and he came back with Alfredo Simon. So we also have to kind of... Uh, Can we pause for a sad oof. trombone there? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, we also have to kind of take some of these comments with a grain of salt, too, just because the guy says they're you know, going to go out and get a starting pitcher doesn't mean we're going to have David Price and Johnny Cueto in the rotation next year. Right, because again, the, there are a lot of dollars tied up right now in existing contracts. Uh, over half of their payroll, in fact, is tied up on like four players or five players. Uh, if you go out and you pick up a David Price you know, at a premium, um, or a Johnny Cueto, or I guess Zach Greinke is now announced he's going to be on the free agent market as well. But if, if you go out and get one of these guys, you don't have money to spend on the bullpen. You don't have money to spend on a second rotation spot. And I kind of think they need two starters. Oh, I definitely think they do as well. Um, you know, going back to what you'd said with the Cubs spending $120 million this year, uh, I was a little surprised by that number, to be honest, just, you know, with all the rookies that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also look back and, you know, the Tigers have, I believe it's six players tied up for a total of $110 million, which is almost the, the Cubs' entire payroll. Right. And the Tigers don't have the same cost-controlled talent that the Cubs do uh, to kind of counteract that that discrepancy. So, you know, it's going to be very tough for them to still feel that competitive roster with the, the massive contracts that they have uh, already on the books. And for the OCD among you who are freaking out because you have remembered from memory what the Cubs actually spent, it's, it's 119. I rounded up. But yeah, 119 million. And the Mariners went with 119.7. The Cardinals spent 120.8. So if we're going to get technical, the Cubs spent 119, which only really further kind of emphasizes your point because 119 is pretty dang close to what the Tigers spent on just a handful of players. Of course, you know, like you said, these teams that we're talking about also have deeper farm systems. The Tigers have not had that luxury up up until this point. You hope they can rebuild it, but I don't think they've got the depth to work with right now. No, they don't. Um, you know, you've got some guys already in the pipeline. Uh, Daniel Norris, Matt Boyd, you know, guys who can, you know, fill a void for you. Uh, hopefully, you know, Norris will be, you know, back and healthy and can kind of live up to the, the, his lofty potential. Um, another guy, Michael Fomer, who's going to be, you know, hopefully a solid pitcher for them. But they still don't have, you know, much going on as far as position players. Um, you know, uh, Jacoby Jones is a guy we've talked about. Uh, and even then, he's still kind of a, eh, maybe he's going to turn out to be something type of guy. There's no, like, you know, surefire top prospect uh, in the organization as far as a, a hitter goes. The other area, too, that Alavila specifically said they wanted to focus on to everyone's, you know, well, they've said this in years past, but I think we all realize he said they need to pay attention to the bullpen this year. Uh, I thought it was really interesting the way he framed that discussion, though, when he said that he wasn't entirely sure they could find a proven closer, he said, quote, I don't know that there's an absolute closer right there that we're locked in on, so we really have to explore every avenue. And he also said that this was where they would be, quote, experimenting and exploring with the use of analytics and scouts. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like music to my ears, (laughs) uh, for one thing. Um, You know, hopefully they're going to, you know, do more than just throw money at the best reliever on the market. Um, you know, with the best reliever on the market probably being Darren O'Day of the Orioles, that's not necessarily the worst idea in the world right now because you've got a guy in O'Day who has an unconventional delivery. He's not your typical throw 95, 
with a hard slider type closer. You know, he's a guy who comes at you from a different arm angle and has really just been hell on right-handers throughout his career. Um, so that would be a guy that I wouldn't necessarily mind throwing a bunch of money at, but you know, to to see the Tigers at least exploring it from a different avenue than what they have in the past uh, is encouraging. I, I think they've got some options already. That I mean, I know the team performed so badly this year that everything is kind of colored that way. But the other day, I was kind of thinking through the arms that they did have in the bullpen, and I thought, okay, if I was the general manager, who would I? cut and who would I keep you know out of the current crop of bullpen arms and as I started to count it off on my hand you know I'm going that's actually not that's a good group if you if you go with Wilson Hardy Verhagen uh, keep Albuquerque I mean we're already up to four at that point I mean a typical bullpen is what eight nine ten arms yeah you're gonna need that many for a season Um, I think they keep seven on the roster at the time Mm -hmm. at one time usually but you're gonna need more than that uh, and it will be nice to see if the Tigers can, you know, get some of these guys. You know, guys like Guido Knudsen and Jeff Farrell didn't really, you know, impress during their time here in Detroit. But, you know, hopefully they can, you know, get another year or two under their belts. Uh, you know, you got another guy in Paul, I think it's Paul Volker is oh, yeah. how it's pronounced, yep. uh, who is absolutely dominated in the minor leagues so far. You know, so hopefully some of those guys can come through and, and give you some production from the farm system. And they don't have to rely solely on free agents to fill that void. Yeah, I just I thought it was kind of interesting that I could come up with four names right off the top, maybe a fifth if you you know scrape a little bit. I I, I really really hope that they don't hang on to Neftali Feliz and see if that's a thing that works. I, I get the idea, you know, the, the the whole argument that hey, he's a reclamation project, take a flyer, all that good stuff. He could work out. If he does work out, great, super cheap option. Blah 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 blah. However. I don't trust Brad Osmus. See, now you got me on. I'm on Brad Osmus again. I was going to stay off this topic. But, yeah, I don't like a guy like Feliz in the bullpen just because he's got closer on his resume. And I know Brad loves his bullpen roles. And if you have a Feliz in the bullpen, I think he's going to end up using him as an eighth, ninth inning guy. Uh, I wouldn't even go that far. I'd say that, you know, 2015 was kind of the year to take a flyer on him, Mm -hmm. see if he could be a reclamation project, and it didn't work out. So I think you just cut him and move on. Can they come up with another three, four relievers without dipping into, you know, the internal options, without having to rush a guy like Joe Jimenez up, you know, from single A? You'd like to think so. You know, hopefully they can find a a guy or two on the free agent market. Um, They've had, you know, they've kind of taken a decent approach with that over the last couple of years. You know, in 2014, they signed Jabba Chamberlain and got, you know, four or five very effective months out of him. Um, before he kind of fell apart. Uh, you know, they had, you know, similar aspirations with guys like Chamberlain and Tom Gorzolani in 2015. They didn't necessarily work out, but, you know, maybe that's where the, you know, the analytics and all that comes into play. And they find a guy who, you know, is on the cusp of a breakout or something along those lines um, and can give you some productive innings. What does the name Joaquin Benoit do for you? I think they'd have to trade for him. I think he has a an option with the Padres. Oh, yep, you're um, right. He's got a club and option. So, and, yep. I, you know, it, it's it's tough to see them not picking that up. You know, maybe a little bit expensive for their blood, but at the same time, you know, he's, you know, a fairly valuable trade chip. And teams are always looking for bullpen help around the trade deadline. Um, you know, and if the Padres hadn't been short-sighted enough to not sell last year, you know, they could have, you know, gotten a decent prospect or two for Benoit last season. Yeah, I, I had forgotten about the club option on Benoit. I, I always liked him. I would love to see him come back for maybe one more year. I know he's getting kind of toward the bad end of, you know, over the hill. But uh, yeah, it, it's just going to be, 
I, like you said earlier, going back to what Alavila, I quoted him as saying, the way they're talking about the fact that they don't know of a closer that they're locked in on, and he's talking about experimenting and exploring, man, that's just going to be... Uh, that's going to be fun to watch, like like watching the guy try to solve like the Rubik's Cube or something, you know? Yeah, well, you know, he also says that there's not necessarily a closer that they're locked in on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was taking a look at some of the free agents. There's not really a closer that's a free agent. There isn't. So that's also part of it, you know, and if you want to take a negative outlook, you say, you know, you're not locked in on the closer because there are no closers available. Joaquin Sori is available. I mean, I guess that's really uh, true. kind of the only one. Yeah, looking at this list, there's there's not really a whole lot of options there. Many many more options, uh, you know, in the starter side of things, but no, not not many pen options. So well, we'll see. We will see what the big brain of Alavila comes up with. Is there anybody that you, that is a standout to you in terms of who they should not sign? Jose Valverde. <laughs> Was that I even mean, is that even on the table? Is he suspended know. for like eighty games for PED use or something? I think. I mean, you asked so. <laughs> Well, okay. Yeah, and the one that I think they should not sign is the pitching machine, that rusty pitching machine out in the bullpen. I do not want to see them bring that in any more games. I mean, it'll as probably long as be better than Tom Gorzolani, So, <laughs> Well, the pitching machine has a new uh, arm slot, so it might work out pretty well. Oh, God, this is getting weird. All right, so that's the plan. That's Alavila's plan. A couple of starting pitchers. They're going to look to fix the bullpen. Didn't really talk a whole lot about the position players, did he? I mean, they're, you know, they're pretty good there. Hopefully they find, you know, a, a decent outfielder put in left field. Um, I'm not really sold on Tyler Collins, but it, that may be kind of be what we're looking at in, in 2016 with some of the other payroll constraints they have going on now. So I'm kind of bracing for that. And if, you know, they do sign an outfielder, hopefully we'll be pleasantly surprised. All right. So to wrap this up, cause I got to ask the question, I've been knocking around in my head for days now, especially after kind of, exploring this question of how long do the Kansas City Royals have the bulk of their roster intact and it's going to be for a while uh does that uh, scare you at all the fact that the Royals are good it looks like they're going to continue to be good um it kind of seems like Alavila is going to have to put together a team here in Detroit that not only is just you know a little above average but they're going to have to be really good enough to beat the Royals can they do that in one offseason it's tough to say whether they're, they're going to be able to do that or not. I definitely think the Royals are going to fall back from what they did last year a little bit. Um, you know, they're losing guys like Ben Zobris and Johnny Cueto, who weren't necessarily around when the Royals, you know, made their big run to the top of the division to start the year. Um, but they're losing Greg Holland to Tommy John surgery. Um, you've got That's some right. other guys who may or may not, you know, be as effective as they were this year. Um, so it's tough to say whether or not they're going to be quite as good. I think they'll still be pretty good, um, but I don't know if they're... And they've also got several arbitration raises to pay, too, so they may not necessarily have the dollars to be able to pay and fill up some of the holes that they're going to have. Um, you know, you got a guy like Wade Davis who's going to be worth like 8 or $9 million next year. You know, he'll be the team's closer, but at the same time, you know, that's a lot of money to be doling out to a guy like that and still have to fix, you know things on the roster elsewhere like i think they have an outfielder that they need to sign they need to figure out what the heck's going on with omar infante uh you know they're down a starter or two as well so they've got some issues yeah when you put it that way i, I had forgotten about greg holland uh going into the tommy john thing so he is going to be out of the uh out of the picture next year 
it's interesting though to, to kind of have that conversation about the arbitration raises because it makes you wonder with a team like the Royals who aren't necessarily heavy spenders and they were 16th on that list of MLB payrolls, uh, are they going to even have the wiggle room in in the off season to make any big moves? It's tough to say, and it, uh, I think a big component for that or for them is going to be Alex Gordon. Uh, Alex Gordon has a player option for I think twelve and a half million dollars next season. Uh, and that's affordable for them. I think that's what he's getting paid this season. Um, but he, you know, and he said that he's going to pick it up, which, you know, it, will he, won't he, it's tough to say, uh, but he stands to make a lot more money than that on the free agent market. So if he declines that option, it's tough to see them bringing him back. And if they do, it'll be kind of one of those contracts that you think may kind of break the bank for them and not give them a chance to spend and fill their needs elsewhere too. Yeah, I still feel like the Royals are going to be the team to beat next year. But uh, one thing is for certain, I will not be making the mistake in the offseason this year of predicting the White Sox going all the way to the World Series. So at least there's that. You know, you live, you learn. And that's going to wrap it up for our high and tight segment. When we get back from the break, we'll go into the mob scene at home and take some listener questions. We're going to be talking about insane sports radio callers when we get back. Swing the fly ball, left field, deep, going back, Cabrera, looking up, and it's gone, a home run! James McCann with the walk-off winner! Number three, rounding third, exchanges the low ten with Dave Clark, and into the hot seat. Yes, indeed, let's go into the mob scene at home, the portion of the show where we take questions from our listening audience and of course you can reach us with those questions uh, via email at bybtigers at gmail.com you can also get those questions to us on twitter you can get me at hookslide byb or you can get rob at byb rob uh, we love to hear from you guys the questions just keep getting better and better and better this is turning into one of my favorite segments actually because i think people are starting to catch on that they need to challenge us with just some outright bizarre stuff. It's going to be a long off season, so that's I'm, I'm totally on board with all of that. First question comes from our own Cameron Kaiser on Twitter at T Town Tiger says, "What is a reasonable contract extension for JD Martinez?" I I already answered this in a post on the site uh, about a week ago. Um, I had said, you know, I just kind of threw an answer out uh, and said, you know, five years and seventy-two million. Um, you know, at first it seemed kind of low, but then I added another uh, a year at sixteen million. Uh, I basically, you know, tally that up as four years at sixteen million and a couple cheaper seasons in twenty sixteen and twenty seventeen for his arbitration years. Um, you know, and it comes out to six years and eighty-eight million dollars. Uh, if you think about that, Adam Jones of the Orioles signed a six-year, eighty-five and a half million dollar deal after the twenty twelve season. Uh, and he had a similar amount of service time at the time. Um, you know, I thought he had a, a better resume, you know, when he signed that contract than what J.D. Martinez has now. And, you know, all of a sudden it does kind of seem like a fairly competitive offer. Um, you know, with the amount that free agents are making these days, you know, Martinez may ask for a little bit more. And then at that point you kind of get into the whole, you know, is it really worth it to sign a deal like this? Um, so, you know, if the Tigers can sign him for a deal kind of like what I had mentioned there, uh, I think that that's fairly reasonable, but you know it's it's tough uh, at this point. You're not gonna you're not gonna sign an Evan Longoria type deal where you're gonna save a ton of money. Um, so you know it's almost you know it's almost worth waiting at this point. Well, he's not represented by Scott Boris, right? 
No, he's not. So I think we're safe on that front because I, then it comes down to what does J.D. Martinez think he is worth? And you got to take into you know consideration the fact that he's uh, turned 28 years old in August. Uh, you know, so when you're talking about a five six year you know extension, you're you're getting into the mid 30s at that point. Uh, it's probably about as far as you'd want to take it. And uh, you know, on the other hand, how much was Victor Martinez making this year? Somewhere around 14 million. Well, 15? I think yeah, I think he made 14 million. Um, I'm trying to remember Victor's contract exactly. I think it's at 14 this year, but then it jumps to 18 million okay. for the next few seasons. Uh, but I I may be wrong on that. Yeah, I just I I don't know why I compare those things, but uh, yeah, you're right. Through 2018, four years, 68 million. Yeah, it's going to jump to 18 here pretty quick. Um, you know, you, I think you're going to get a lot more value and production out of a JD Martinez than even a Victor Martinez. And so, you know, if you want to make those uh, contracts comparable. I guess, you know, I'm I'm fine with going up as even as high as 17, 18 million a year. Yeah. And and with and with JD Martinez, the the other part of it is is he going to be willing to sign a contract extension at this point? Hmm. Like you said, he just turned 28 this year. Uh he'll be a free agent by the time he gets uh to about 30 years old. Um and that's going to be kind of his chance at a huge payday. Right. Um, so the Tigers need to be able to offer enough to kind of sway him to sign that, kind of give him the long, some long-term stability now, uh, but at the same time, you know, get the kind of offer that's going to save them a little bit money, down, a little bit of money down the road. Well, like I said, going to come down to what he thinks he's worth and what he thinks he can pull in in a couple of years. Uh, you know, for a guy that was being cut by the Houston Astros, you know, not that long ago. Uh, what's that look on your face? Um, I'm watching now. The Mets just scored a go-ahead run on a and a strikeout that got past uh, their catcher Miguel Montero. Uh, they struck out. Uh, I don't know who was batting, um, but you know the ball skipped past the catcher. The guy ran into first, and Cespedes scooted home. So it's three-two Mets now. I am very much not in favor of the Mets sweeping this. Um, yeah, I, like I said, I don't really know who my rooting interests are at this point, but. I'm definitely rooting for this thing to go all seven games. So. Like I said, I'm rooting for game sevens. Come on, no no four-game sweeps, guys. Jeez. I've had a rough year. Give me at least that. All right, next question uh, from hashtag come together at a name that I can't pronounce. Uh, it's at B-A-E-Q-U-A-Z-A. Bayquaza? Is this a Blue Jays fan coming at Maybe, hashtag yeah, come together? That's kind of their... Or a, Be- or a Beatles fan. Well, there's, yeah, it's John Lennon tweeting us. The question is, if the Tigers had unlimited spending this offseason, what would you like to see them do? Uh, this kind of goes back to an article from The Onion, I think I saw a few years ago, where it says something along the lines of the New York Yankees sign every free agent in baseball. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you have unlimited money, you might as well do that, right? That's Sign sign David Price, sign J- John, Johnny Cueto, sign... Uh, I don't even know who else is on the market right now. Jordan Zimmerman and just make those guys all the starters and, you know, put Anibal Sanchez in the bullpen and do a bunch of ridiculous things like that. Well, I mean, if we're talking like truly unlimited, you know, like billions upon billions upon billions of dollars, that that is the only right answer. If you're going to go like true ultimate fantasy, yes, then, then you just uh, sign every all-star that you can. I mean, I know some of those guys are already locked up. You can't get like a Mike Trout because he's already under contract. But yeah, I would go out and get every available pick. Just pick the best ones, offer them tons and tons of money. But let's let's pull that back a little bit and say it's unlimited, but it's unlimited within reason. Like we'll say closer to you know three, four hundred million. 
I mean, even then, I think you can still add pretty much everyone you want there. You know, get like a David Price. Maybe would sign you, someone. Would you go right after the starting pitcher, say get Price, get Cueto? I mean, if you're, you know, if it, it also depends on how much money you can spend long term. Um, you know, I'd say David Price, you know, not necessarily Cueto. Get someone like Scott Kazmier so you have kind of that more reasonable starting pitching contract on the roster. You know, go get Yohannes Cespedes or Jason Hayward or whoever. Um, and then, you know, maybe add, you know, a cheaper a cheaper guy to platoon with uh, Anthony Ghost. Maybe just re-sign Rajay Davis. And then, you know, maybe a cheap backup catcher, too. Hmm. I, I, it's funny because I think a, kind of a more interesting question is not what would you do with unlimited funds. The question I keep kind of knocking around is what would you do if you didn't have a dying owner breathing down your neck saying, win me a damn World Series right now? If you had time to play with and say, I, I can go ahead and afford to kill three years here and build up a farm, farm system and see how that pans out, would you go that route or would you go spend a bunch of damn money? Um, well, yeah. I don't know. It's tough to say. Uh, I think that you got to spend enough now to make Miguel Cabrera and Justin Verlander useful. Uh, you don't necessarily want, you know, these last few years of their prime to be, you know, completely worthless. So I think you go you go after a guy on a more reasonable, uh, you know, contract. A guy I mentioned is Scott Casimir. Now um, he's kind of the one that's coming to mind as a guy who you could probably have on a shorter term contract who's still going to give you some solid innings. Uh, once you get into guys like Jordan Zimmerman, Johnny Cueto, the years and money really start getting ridiculous. So it's tough to say. Hmm. Um, so getting, you know, getting some other guys like that to hopefully make a little bit of a run in 2016, hopefully when everyone's healthy, I think that's going to be a big key for the Tigers. Uh, you know, maybe you see a little bit of improvement there. Yeah, I think I would agree. If you're going to just spend a bunch of money, then you get Cueto, Price, Granky, everybody you can. It's funny, though, because if we're going to go that middle route of saying you, you do want to get some, uh, you know, build around that core of Cabrera, Verlander before these guys become, you know, not as useful, not as productive. Um, at the same time, you know, wanting to do something with the farm system, maybe they do. That Maybe that's exactly the route that they're going to take. I, I don't know, but... I've been saying it for weeks, man. 2016 is just going to be, this offseason is going to be crazy. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Adam Langworthy at Tigers Fan Mags, that's Mags with two Gs, wants to know what was worse this year, the starting rotation or Miguel Cabrera's haircut? That is a tough one. Uh, Miggy's haircut was pretty bad. It was like the Macklemore haircut, but worse somehow. It looked like there was like a dead ferret on his head for a lot of the year. Yep. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the Tigers rotation looked like there was a dead ferret on the mound for a decent part of the year. Um, and since the starting rotation actively contributed to the Tigers losing, I'd have to say them over the haircut, which didn't really stop Miguel Cabrera from winning a batting title. Hmm. That's one way to look at it. Uh, I'm going to cast my vote with Miguel Cabrera's haircut, though, because, yes, the, to your point, uh, dead ferret on top. Looked like he was like trying to out-ugly Mike Illich's hairpiece in that respect. Uh, the thing that I take issue with is that the starting rotation, as bad as it was, was only bad four out of five days. Miguel's haircut was awful every single day. There was never a point that that haircut was okay. So just based on the numbers alone, man, I, I got to go... Mickey's haircut. And it's going to be really interesting to see what he comes out with next year because if you notice, he changes it like every year. He does. Um, and a guy that you're going to have to Google this, uh, Jeremy Lin, a basketball player, I think he plays for the Charlotte Hornets now, um, has you know, the 
kind of another ridiculous haircut and one that I think Miguel Cabrera could kind of transform his hair into if he has enough hair gel. Um, and he's basically got, you know, the same type of haircut there, but it's sticking straight up. <laughs> um, so I'm interested to see, you know, if he, he, you know, Jeremy Lin looks like one of those characters from Dragon Ball Z right now. Uh-huh. So, you know, <laughs> getting Miguel Cabrera, I think that's the next evolution of Miguel Cabrera's hair, hopefully. Well, no, he went with that, like, really kind of big mop that was like super tight curl and greasy and longish in the back to then he went and like had the the kind of the mohawk thing going on for a little while and then there was just kind of the more normal cut and now this year with the the dead thing ground rat on top i can't wait to see what he comes back with i mean next year let's do um hair metal let's uh, you know yeah. hair band type. 80s hair band yes. uh, you know, one one underrated haircut that i need to, that i think needs to come back is victor martinez's little mini afro that's <laughs> great i think we need to bring that back you know what? I, I honestly, is, these guys can do whatever they want with the hair. That's fine. I'm just happy that they're not doing that weird beard thing anymore, like the Red Sox did, and like we're seeing some guys, some other players do, where they just keep growing and growing mountains and mountains of facial hair. Let's not ever go down that path, because no. I mean, the Red Sox didn't win a World Series with that. It didn't have anything to do with. The, you know what? I'm not gonna waste my time with that. Chris Garcia at. CG Churro 95 uh, thoughts on having Daniel Norris and Matt Boyd compete for the final rotation spot um, I'm fine with having you know all those guys kind of compete for a spot um, you've got Norris you've got Boyd you've even got guys like Buck Farmer Kyle Lobstein um, you know I'd say throw them all into a pit and let whichever one comes out alive uh, you know be the starting pitcher <laughs> next season you know obviously not that graphic um, wow but it's- um, got dark all of a sudden it did it did and that's that's kind of bad um but um you know i i'm okay with having those kind of positional battles during spring training uh the one thing i i hope is that with the tigers you know saying that they're going to sign two starting pitchers this offseason or acquire two starting pitchers i should say is that they don't you know get a couple guys that they're going to stick with come hell or high water and then you know maybe a couple of their guys you know, the younger guys are performing well and they get, you know, shuttled down to Toledo or something because someone else is pitching really well. Um, you saw in 2013 when Drew Smiley was moved to the bullpen um, because he was kind of just too good to leave in the minor leagues. You know, hopefully the Tigers are able to do that with, uh, you know, some of their younger guys. You know, I don't necessarily hope that someone's get gets moved to the bullpen, um, but I wouldn't mind seeing something like that, especially with, you know, a guy like Michael Fulmer, um, you know, a guy. You know, he's kind of one of those guys that I almost look to experiments that other teams have done. Um, I remember Chris Medlin is comes to mind uh, with the Atlanta Braves several years ago when they used him as a uh, as a reliever for a part of the year and then moved him to the rotation down the stretch, and he was utterly dominant. Um, you know, and they did that to kind of limit his innings. So if the Tigers are interested in doing that with Fulmer, who has had injury problems in the past, you know, I wouldn't be uh, against that if he proves that he's ready. The the interesting question to me is that uh, if you consider the these three Verlander Sanchez and then uh, Shane Green as being more or less three permanent fixtures next year, I mean, that's, that's assuming some things I know, but let's just go with that. If the Tigers do indeed want to target two starting pitchers, that doesn't really leave room in the five man rotation for either Norris or Boyd. See, and Shane Green's a guy I keep forgetting about. Uh, you know, I would group Green in with this group, with these other guys right here hmm. as kind of, you know, one of the guys fighting for a rotation spot, especially if the Tigers acquire two pitchers. 
Um, you know, and you, throwing, you know, another guy like Green in there, you know, who has shown flashes of being, you know, a very good starting pitcher. Uh, if you get him into that mix as well, um, you know, it's kind of kind of starting to look like a good problem to have right. depending on who they acquire this offseason. Um, you know, the Tigers have shown in, you know, the past couple of years that they definitely need that type of rotation depth. Um, so, you know, hopefully it comes to, you know, someone, you know, guys outperforming each other. Um, you know, that would be a, a great problem to have in 2016. All in favor of having them, you know, like you said, compete for that spot in spring training. I'm not necessarily uh, looking to get them in a pit uh, trying to kill each other, but maybe they could have like a contest where they where they style Miggy's hair and the best stylist wins. Maybe that's a little that's a little more peaceable. Jay at Jay Polger says team needs tons of help in the pen. Why not claim Pat Vendit? Have you seen his uh, left hand versus left hand batter numbers? Well, Pat Vendee is the switch pitcher, uh, yes. the guy that throws with both hands. Um, it seems like I, I didn't really take a look at his numbers, but it seems like he's you know pretty good against left-handed batters. Uh, the problem is that Vendee was already claimed by the Blue Jays, mm. who have a habit of claiming everybody he's whenever deep. this happens. Um, so you know that is uh, that has already passed. Uh, Patrick O'Kennedy, our you know guy who is you know just an absolute expert when it comes to all the the rules and the minute details of, you know, collective bargaining agreement and all that. Um, Patrick's a lawyer, so that makes sense that he would know all that. Um, he had pointed out that the Tigers actually had to pass on Vendit uh, for him to be claimed by the Blue Jays. Um, so it seems like they didn't want him. Hmm. Um, to kind of go off on a tangent here, a guy that I would like to see the Tigers kind of go after, um, he wasn't necessarily put on waivers, but the Phillies, I think, outright released Dominic Brown, an outfielder yep. who had hit very well for them a couple of years ago. And the first kind of thought that popped into my head was uh, J.D. Martinez. Right. So, you know, I, I think I tweeted something like, uh, I will not call him a left-handed J.D. Martinez. I will not call him a left-handed J.D. <laughs> Martinez. Um, but it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be too upset if the Tigers kind of went after him to see what he could provide next year. Hmm. A lot of different uh, names going around there right now. And, I don't know enough about Pat Vendit to say whether or not that would be a good thing. It, like you said, it sounds like the Tigers had a, an opportunity and passed on him. Um, I mean, you know, as far as the freak show factor goes, that'd be a lot of fun to have the guy. I, I did watch him pitch a few games last year. That was kind of weird and cool to see him switch glove hands and then go after you left-handed, then right-handed. But, uh, you know, at this point, we need good pitchers and depth and all that kind of stuff. Can't really afford to be taking flyers on guys just for the pure entertainment value. This is not 2015 anymore, you know. We got we got to aim higher than just entertainment at this point. Let's go after an actual division title. Uh, Hippo's Revenge at Hippo Sloth Rex asks: Is Pete Rose just a funny old man or a total loon? Pete Rose looks like a used car salesman. Yes. And that's kind of great. Um, you know, he's you know just the right amount of crazy for that set. I think, um, you know, especially with them adding guys like Max Scherzer and Alex Rodriguez, both who I think have done a fantastic job with them so far, it kind of, you know, it really makes Pete Rose to be out to, makes him out to be the crazy old man of the set. But it's kind of a nice little dynamic to have, you know, him like almost like reaching across the desk to try to take a swing at Alex Rodriguez or something ridiculous, um, you know, and also have him wearing some like, I think they're like yellow alligator skin shoes. Those things uh, are those, so awesome. <laughs> they're so great. <laughs> what but it's is that? So like, funny. It's like lime green or something. I, I don't know what it is, but it's amazing. <laughs> and it's, it's very funny to see this. Um, I saw, oh, where was it? I saw somewhere that, 
you know, I think it was on uh, on Fox Sports One where they had created a little bit of a montage of Pete Rose and Frank Thomas and kind of uh, styled it as a like buddy cop parody with the two of them, and it was. It was really funny. I'm going to have to find that. I think it was actually on Twitter. I'm going to have to find that, but it was really, really funny. Pete Rose is just, you know, the question was a funny old man or a total loon, and I kind of go, well, what can't it be both? I mean, he's it's just a character, and yeah, there there is that uh, the cranky old man dimension of the whole thing. The thing that was kind of funny to me is watching, I honestly haven't seen a whole lot of what he's been doing Um because I'm not watching like pre and post game stuff as much, uh, but the other night he was on, and that's when I saw the shoes. And I even asked my wife, "I'm like, do we need to fix the contrast and color on the television, or is that like, is that what I'm seeing? Are those shoes supposed to be white and they just look yellow, or are they actually yellow shoes that he's wearing?" the The one thing that kind of stuck out to me is his his stature when he's standing up there with you know big guys like A Rod and Scherzer and it's just little dude. I'm thinking that's the guy that plowed over Ray Fossey and broke his collarbone. I mean, this is Charlie Hustle, the guy who, you know, beat Ty Cobb's hit record. What the? Is he really that small? Is he apparently that small? I I don't know. Apparently he is. Um, he's definitely grown a little bit around the waist, which I don't think helps uh, in that regard. And you also you know you got guys like Scherzer and Adrod. Those guys are massive. You know, he's true. You know, Pete Rose is standing next to Frank Thomas, the big hurt. So that definitely doesn't help. Um, but you know, it is just kind of a funny little dynamic that they have going on. They, uh, yeah, it's like, they don't, uh, they make ball players bigger than they used to. And yeah, I'm looking up right now. He is only five foot 11. So, I mean, in baseball terms, that's especially these days, that's, that's not, uh, it's not big, you know, it's pretty small. Alex Rodriguez. Let's quick pull his, his number. Yeah. Six foot three. Yeah, that's a big dude. Six, three, two, 25. Yeah. So Maybe they just they're making them bigger and bigger these days, but yep, that's that's Charlie Hustle out there. Oh boy, uh, do, do you have any <laughs> bets on what uh, what becomes of him? I know his uh, case is being heard again by MLB and the new commissioner, and are they going to reinstate Pete Rose? You'd think so, but I remember I I can't remember exactly what he said, but he had some weird comments uh, recently uh, that weren't exactly that. Yeah, they didn't. It, it wasn't a good look for him um, to say whatever he said. I'd have to look back and see exactly what it was. Uh, but I remember reading that and I'm going, "Really, Pete? Come on, dude." Um, so you know, it's tough to say whether or not he will. You know, I think it's good that they're hearing the case again. But you know, it, as to whether he'll be reinstated or whatnot, you know, it, it's tough to say. Yeah, I'm not really sure how that all you know ends up. But I I thought it was kind of telling that they're letting him into the you know analyst booth now letting him be much more associated with the mlb product that's kind of a i i didn't think i'd live to see the day i mean because i was of age when all that was going down and his hearings and being banned from baseball and all that so it's just man, weird times final question from chris at malkovich plan uh, that's our friend chris lemieux from the sb nation's detroit lions blog pride of detroit.com uh is asking What's your most favorite, sorry, try again. What's your favorite most insane sports radio caller question you've had the fortune to listen to? Well, I'll let you go ahead with this first. You're definitely the one that peruses a bit more talk radio than I do, uh, especially me being here in D.C. Um, you know, I get a lot of, we, I like listening to the post-game shows after Redskins games here because it is absolutely hilarious to hear these people just rant and rave about their team. Mm-hmm. 
but you know, as far as Detroit colors go, I I'm not really involved in that as much. It's a train wreck, and I think that's why I'm drawn to it because I am Team Chaos, and you know, I, I kind of love that sort of thing. And so, whenever the Tigers have a particularly bad game, one of my favorite things to do is get right up on WXYT and just listen to the callers rant and rave. Uh, and the funny thing is, is they don't really change their opinion. The, regardless of what the team is doing. The team could be in first place for weeks on end, and people are still calling and yelling about stuff. And by the way, Chris followed up with an example. He says, when I lived in Georgia, a dude called in and made a valiant, somewhat intoxicated case that the Braves should go get A-Rod. So this is the kind of thing that, that, that he's looking for. Oh, man. I don't. It's so hard to even categorize and rank those things. And you can certainly go online to our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash byb.tigers. Read any of the Facebook comments on our posts there, and you'll get a <laughs> written record of the same kind of things you hear on you know, sports radio. So anything from, um, you know, we had a, a, just a, a large number of callers in 2013 that were constantly calling for Jim Leland's firing, even though the Tigers had been in first place for like 90% of the year. Um, guys that w- that want uh, to move, well, this is even current stuff. Want to move Miguel Cabrera back to third base and get rid of Nick, Nick Castellanos? <laughs> like, yeah, that would be a nice step forward for us. But yeah, it's boy, it's it is really hard to uh, come up with <laughs> with like a really outstanding. I don't know this this year, Rob. It's been more about Facebook comments and comments on uh, you know free press articles and that kind of thing. That's where you find the really good stuff. Like the guy who left a comment on our uh, Jeff Jones post that said, "I hope he dies." Like, dude, seriously with that? I mean, <laughs> the people are just awful. So it's ridiculous. Don't read the comments. Never, ever. I mean, unless you're like me and you just can't get away from the train wreck. Uh, yeah, don't, don't ever. Just you can read our from. comments. Read our comments. Our comments are fine. You know, we do a pretty darn good job. I think of. Uh-huh fostering good polite conversation i mean you get a couple of lunatics here and there but for the most part blessyboys.com has got a really kick-ass comment section and a lot of i think mutual learning that goes on there so it's kind of a nice little haven on the web um except for when i get on there and i get drunk and i'm the one saying they should go get a rod then you just need to log off or get me to log off all right, that will just about do it for our Into the Mob Scene at Home segment. When we get back, we will wrap things up with the seventh inning Kvetch. Got to play the game hard, just not that hard. Talk about that when we get back. Three now, here's the 2-2. Two, two. Oh, boy. Curveball grabbed the outside corner. Victor, not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Brad Osmus better get out there quickly. Oh, Victor got wow. All right, as we get ready to wrap things up with our final segment, the seventh inning Kvetch, we're going to talk about a big controversy came up in the last uh, week and a half or so. You know, you got to play baseball hard, but just not that hard, Rob. We're talking, of course, about the big uh, scandal, slide gate, take out slides. What happened in the Mets-Dodgers game, this was uh, a week ago Saturday, it was. I recall, because I went to bed early that night. I was watching the game, the Mets-Dodgers. I saw that the Mets had the game seemingly well in hand the sixth inning. They were up like 3 nothing or whatever it was, and I thought I was safe to go to bed. Woke up the next morning, and all hell had broken loose. The Dodgers had won the game, and part of it was because uh, when they had the tying run at third base in the seventh inning and Chase Utley standing at first base, there was a ground ball up the middle, fielded by the second baseman, flipped back to Ruben Tejada at short, 
uh, Utley took him out, took him out hard enough that he broke a leg. Um, Rob, a lot of questions here, a lot of things to kind of slice and dice. Um, let's start with the fact that um, Utley was suspended and never served the suspension. I think he still has to serve that if it's you know upheld. Um, really, there was the dividing you know of, of opinions. You had the, the old school guys saying, nope, that's the way you do it. That's the way you play the game. Chase Utley saying, you can't suspend me for that. That's the way I was taught to play the game. And then you have the other crowd saying no this baseball is not a contact sport as as jeff sullivan wrote where do you kind of fall on that whole spectrum well i think the slide was incredibly late uh and i think it definitely violated the rules uh you know the you know the baseball rules stipulate that the guys you know have to be within arm's reach of the bag and you know maybe utley was right at the bag there but he slid basically after he was at the bag uh trying to you know take out ruben tejada at the time um, so I think that I think that the you know there is a rule in place that can kind of prevent some of this, but I don't think that baseball is very good about enforcing that rule, and it leads to a lot of situations like this. Um, you had a situation earlier this year where someone I, I think it was someone from the Cubs had taken out uh, Jung Ho Gung, uh, the Pirates, you know, breakout young shortstop, um, and he was injured and so I think broke his leg as well. Um, and was out for the rest of the season. You know, it's tough to say whether he would have been the difference in the wild card game against Jake Arrieta, but, you know, maybe Gung is the difference in the last six weeks of the year uh, as the Pirates are trying to chase down the Cardinals. Right. Um, so it's, you know, it's definitely unfortunate that, you know, these injuries are happening now. Um, you know, in a post I had written on the site about this situation, I noted that, you know, players and we even talked about this in the last segment players are bigger now than they used to be they're bigger they're faster they're stronger um so you know guys you know being taught to do a takeout slide you know you're not a five nine guy trying to take out a five eight middle infielder anymore uh you know these guys are six three two twenty two thirty two forty uh so they're coming at you a lot more force than in years past and i think that that's part of the reason why uh you know they do kind of need to do something about these takeout slides yeah, but that's baseball getting soft, isn't it? I mean, I mean, obviously I'm playing devil's advocate here. I don't really kind of fall on that side of the opinion, you know, the fence. But I thought it was interesting because I texted a friend of mine, you know, and said, hey, did you see the game last night? You know, it sounds like there was some shenanigans and whatever. And he texted back and said, you know, I didn't see anything wrong with it. The thing that stuck out at me, he said uh, to me, was when he said to me, this is how you and I were taught to play the game growing up. And I thought... God, you're right. You're right. This starts in Little League. This starts when we were kids, you know, growing up, learning the game from our coaches, and that's exactly what they taught us to do. If you're going into second base, you go in hard. If you have a chance to exploit, you know, your opponent's weakness and take out the guy. If he's dumb enough to stand that close to second, you go in, you take him out. Obviously, the intent is not to hurt the guy, and even Chase Utley apologized uh, to Ruben Tejada and, and said multiple times in press statements, I mean, I feel really bad. I wasn't trying to hurt the guy. It was just, you know. It's a postseason game. You're tying runs on third. You're trying to stay alive. Of course you're going to go in hard. Of course you're going to try and take him out if you can. That's the way we play the game. Or or is it? Yeah, I mean, I think it is. And I think that, you know, people that are saying, you know, ban takeout slides, you need to slide directly into the base. I think that's a little bit too extreme for what we've got going on here. I think that the takeout slide is a part of baseball. Uh, and I think that it needs to be. I think that I just kind of like I had said before, I think baseball needs to be better about enforcing the rules that are already in place to prevent situations like this. You know, make sure guys are sliding within arm's reach of the bag, that they can get to the bag, 
um, and that they're not just doing it just to take out a fielder, even though that may be the actual intent. Uh, you know, a guy like Utley who is slid well past the bag, uh, you gotta, I think you got to take that play out uh, of baseball as well. Uh, I think that the infielders should be able to use the bag kind of as protection there. You know, if a, if a second baseman can kind of hit the bag and then step behind it to make the throw, I think they should be able to, you know, be able to get that throw off without being absolutely clobbered by, uh, you know, a runner in the way that Utley did coming in, you know, so as late as he did. Um, so I think that there's a little bit of a gray area in between kind of a happy medium that I think the, we can find. You know, it's going to take a little while to do that. I know that uh, Major League Baseball, I think, is already experimenting with having players slide directly into the base in the Arizona Fall League, um, which I think is great because, you know, you definitely don't want to see the situation happen with, you know, some prospects in a meaningless game. Um, but... You know, I think that there's a way for them to do this without, you know, causing, you know, making you know, sweeping changes. To yeah, the game. it's just hard to know what those changes were. I, mean, I guess a big, big, big part of this for me is, like you said, it's on the books already. The, the rule exists enough that Joe Torre was able to say, hey, we looked back at the rule and did conclude this was an illegal slide. That's why they issued the suspension. Um but they don't ever enforce that rule. And the fact that you were able to write that post and come up with, you know, X number of you know previous instances, including uh, when Colby Rasmus took out Omar Infante in 2013. And we still hate Colby Rasmus for that and what he did and took. I mean, Infante was out for, what, six weeks himself. Six weeks. Yeah. And and another one that I pointed out was Andy Dirks. Andy Dirks. Twelve, yes. a play that we had celebrated. And I think BYB even called it the play of the year. Huh. Uh, type of thing and you know i looked back in that and i saw that and i was like oh actually dirks was a little bit late with that slide um so you know i i i think that there's a place for it in baseball i just think that they need to kind of tone it down a little bit with some of this we're seeing some kind of uh, not necessarily ridiculous slides but definitely very late and i and i hesitate to call anything like this dirty uh, i made sure that i didn't call at least play dirty either in the post or earlier in the podcast um because, you know, like he said, he wasn't intending to injure Tejada. It was just, you know, a hard baseball play. I think that we just kind of need to scale it back a little bit and get these guys maybe thinking twice before they, you know, come in that hard and that late on a slide. And like I said, it's going to be really hard to figure out where those boundaries are because, look, the point of that play is to take the other guy out. That's just the fact. That is the strategy. That is right? the point. But at the same time, you know, you, you know, Utley and other people have said, you know, this is the way we were taught to play the game. Um, but if, you know, if Utley slides like that, that far, that past, that far past the bag in Little League, you know, he's going to, you know, hear about it for, you know, for parents and everything. There's going to be, you know, 20 different rule changes in Little League to hmm. change that play in a, in a slide like that, you know, as far as far past the bag as he was, you know, you're taught to, you know, slide hard and everything. But at the same time, players are taught to, taught to slide, you know, towards the base or, you know, very close to the base in that situation in Little League. Yeah, it, it, the thing is that the same uh, dichotomy, you know, of opinion exists in Little League because I can guarantee you, you know, that happens. I'm, I've been coaching Little League for like five years now, and when that kind of a thing happens, you're right. There are parents that get up in arms and are like, you've got to be kidding me, you know, rewrite the rules or whatever. But then you got half the other parents that are going, nope, that's baseball, good for you, you know, be aggressive, be competitive, be a gamer and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, uh, you know, it's just going to be an ongoing thing until they get something codified and enforced, especially as, as the key there. But, I mean, like I said, that is the point of the slide. It's just like, uh, 
any other strategy in baseball. It's like throwing a curveball. Why do you do that? Well, I'm trying to achieve an intended you know, result to fool the batter. Why are you sliding that way? I'm trying to take him out. I'm trying to knock the guy over. I'm trying to make it so he can't throw the ball so that my team saves an out, you know, and Utley was doing exactly what baseball players are supposed to do. It's just, um, I, honestly, the, the thing that made me mad about it is that they reviewed the play and then ruled him safe. Now, that's where I think, you know, the whole issue of the neighborhood play, the fact that the infielder doesn't necessarily have to put the foot right on the bag, that's their protection, I think. If, if you can kind of dance around the bag and have some wiggle room to jump and move and maneuver and all that kind of thing, I mean, that's that's how you protect yourself as a middle infielder. And I was really upset when they came back and reviewed it and said, no, it's not really a neighborhood play because of whatever it was. I think it was a... Because of the way the ball was thrown in, because he had to turn and, you know, all that. And they called him safe. They called Outley safe, and he didn't even touch the bag. He right. never touched the bag during this whole process. And people had said, you know, if Tejada's leg wasn't broken, maybe he would have tagged him out um, type of thing. So, yeah, I think that Utley definitely should have been out on that play. Uh, and like you said, you know, the neighborhood play, I think, definitely should have come into effect there. Uh, so it's, it's you know, it, it wasn't a great situation for them all around. Had they reviewed it and called Utley out... I think there would have been a lot less, you know, controversy over this because I think it also would have changed the game. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't necessarily know if the Dodgers would have come back and won that game. Um, obviously, it didn't affect the outcome in the series, but you know, it's still kind of one of those things that you know had had the, the review not gone so poorly, I don't think we'd be making as big of a deal out of this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a feeling that you know we are going to see something change whether it's a kind of a clarification of the rules or whether they just start i mean i think part of this is on the umpires as well you you know you guys got to enforce the rules mlb makes the rules but we rely on the umpires to actually enforce it and they haven't been they're gonna have to if this is ever gonna change i I did sympathize with utley though in saying hey you can't suspend me for this this is not a rule that ever gets enforced you're not seriously going to take a stand now i thought kurt actually kurt mentioning made a very good point when we were talking about this in the chat room that uh, as far as the MLB rules go, there's not there's no provision in that rule for issuing a suspension, you know. And there are those provisions in other cases of illegal plays, you know, where it will say, hey, uh, um, subsequent penalties including suspension may be you know applied after the fact. It doesn't it doesn't come into play for that. So, do you think they're going to follow through with it? Do you think they'll actually suspend them, or was this just co- sort of a you know making an issue out of it to make an issue out of it to raise the level you know of awareness and that kind of thing? It could be that, um, you know, it's tough to say whether baseball will actually suspend him. Like you said, there's no real precedence to it. There's no rule that says they can suspend him for something like that. So it'll be tough to, it'll be tough for baseball to upheld, uphold this, <coughs> excuse me, uphold this, the suspension um, with an appeal. Well, we certainly uh, wish Ruben Tejada the best in his recovery. It'll be funny to see how this kind of shakes out and whether they will, in fact, follow through on that suspension. But uh, well, like I said, one way or the other, I feel like it's it's come to a head now and we are going to see something, whether it's a change in the rules or a, uh, penalties applied or just the umpires having to enforce it better. Something's got to happen um, without you know ruining the integrity of the game in the process. Well, that is just about going to do it for this 10th episode of the Voice of the Turtle podcast. Rob, any final thoughts? Nope, I'm just excited to enjoy the rest of this playoff game. How's it going? Uh, Mets are up 5-2 to two now. Holy crap. No, no, no. You need to lose some games because we need more baseball. I'm not ready. To... Oh, wait, hold on. 
What? Uh, oh, no. Uh, it looked like someone hit a home run. Nope. Still 5-2. Just kidding. <laughs> Long, loud out. Uh, those things happen. All right. Well, just because the show is over doesn't mean the discussion has ended. Make sure to leave your comments at blushyboys.com where this podcast is embedded or connect with me on Twitter at hookslidebyb, Rob at bybrob, or you can email us at bybtigers at gmail.com. So on behalf of Robert Jackie and all the rest of the still recovering Michigan football fans, this is Hook Slide reminding you, you can't perform daily bat flips if you don't carry a spare bat with you at all times. And we will see you next time on The Voice of the Turtle.